0: The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're crawling our way towards the conclusion of this study, this series of studies we've done in the Gospel of John, and it has been absolutely tremendous. I've loved each and every week as the Lord is just revealing more and more about himself to us. And today, oh, we've got some good, good food to dive into because we're going to be looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the highlight of all of human history. This is the centerpiece. This is what it's all about. You pick the right week to come to church. The title of my message for you this morning is The Curse Is reversed. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? The curse has been reversed. And we're going to get into that. But before we do, as John kind of concludes chapter 19, he's having described the horrors of what took place there on Calvary on what we call Good Friday. And we're about to read about the wonderful events of Easter Sunday, but sandwiched between those two events, we have what's known as Silent Saturday. And Saturday was a day that was marked by intense grief and silence and sadness as the disciples tried to grapple with the prospect of facing the future without Jesus. You see, they had pinned all their hopes on him, but now he was gone. And so in verse 41 of John 19, it says that the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. As we read about this garden, I want to talk about How paradise was lost. You can pull out your notes and fill in that first blank there as you follow along this morning. Paradise lost. You know, John is the only gospel author to make mention of the fact that Jesus' tomb was located within a garden. And it's an interesting contrast that he paints, if you think about it. I mean, gardens and tombs don't necessarily belong together. Gardens are places of life, tombs are full of death. Gardens are places of beauty, tombs are full of bones, I mean I can't think of two things that are more opposite in nature from one another, yet John intentionally ties them together here, and the question is, why? And again, I want to mention that this reference seems intentional, and what I believe John is trying to do is, I believe he's trying to link this garden that we're reading about here with another prominent garden that we read reading about in Scripture. It's found on page one of your Bible. You know which garden I'm talking about, the Garden of Eden. And there in the opening pages of the Bible, after we read about God creating the heavens, and the earth, and the seas, and the trees, and the mountains, and the hills, and the valleys, and all of the rest. We read about him designing this beautiful garden, (coughs) and then placing Adam and Eve in the midst of it, and giving them instructions to tend it. Of course, at the center of that garden were two trees. You remember what they were? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And sometimes people say, well, why did he, why did he even create the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And the, the simple answer is because love demands a choice, right? In order for love to be authentic, it necessitates that a choice gets to be made. If, if my wife marries me and she says yes, and I ask her to marry me, and she says yes, but I'm the only other man on earth, And then I'm always going to be wondering in the back of my mind, did she choose me because she really loved me or because she had no other options? And since God wants a genuine love relationship with us, he gives us an option. Of course, we know what happens next. The serpent, the devil, approaches Adam and Eve. And here's what he does. He questions what God said to them. Hath God really said that you can't eat of this tree? And then after questioning what God told them about the tree, he adds to what God said. And then thirdly, he flat out denies what God told them. And we know what happened next. They eat of the tree, both Adam and Eve, and the consequences of their actions were as swift as they were severe. God comes down and he kicks them out of the garden, and this is where death enters the picture. The earth is also placed under a curse and begins to produce thorns. God also pronounces a curse upon the serpent and he was forced to walk on his belly. And by the way, this explains so much about the current state of the world, that nagging sense of frustration that we all feel that things aren't the way they ought to be. And no matter how hard we work or how much effort we put in, we can't get this world to quite work the way we think it should. It's why we cry at funerals. It's because death isn't natural. You weren't designed originally with a setting that expires, but you were created to live with God forever in harmony and fellowship and oneness. But when sin entered the picture, everything was fractured. Everything was broken. And this story makes sense of our current experience. And so we're all under a cursed state, the earth is under a cursed state, but right after God pronounces judgment on the man and the woman and the earth and the serpent, he does something else. And in Genesis 3.15, he makes a promise. It's the very first prophecy concerning the Messiah that you'll read about in the Bible. And there he talks about the seed of the woman, which is interesting because usually it's men who have seed and women who have eggs, right? But here Jesus, or rather God, talks about the seed of the woman, a hint of the virgin birth. And he says that one is going to come who, although the serpent will bite his heel, he will crush the serpent's head. It's a prophecy concerning the Messiah who'd one day step onto the scene and undo the effects of the curse. Thousands of years pass, more prophecies are given, and then Jesus shows up and he fulfills each and every one of those pictures and promises and prophecies. His whole ministry is an undoing and an unraveling of everything that that Adam and Eve brought on this earth. Everywhere he goes, lives are healed. The deaf hear, the blind see, and Jesus is reversing the curse. He's called, one of his names in scripture, is the second Adam. Did you know that? One of his names. He's the second Adam. Because just as Adam served as a representative for all of humanity, because we are all in Adam, we all descend from Adam, and so his decisions affect all of us. Jesus, as the second Adam, serves again for us as a representative for all humanity. And, and so it makes sense that just like Adam, Jesus would be tempted. Only when we read about Jesus' temptation, it's interesting. Because it doesn't at first happen in a garden. But rather, Jesus' temptation happens in a wilderness. And that's significant. Why? Because paradise had been lost through Adam and Eve's actions. And so Jesus is driven into the wilderness by the spirit where he is tempted three times by the devil. But at every point where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. Instead of questioning God's word or doubting God's word or denying God's word, Jesus submits to God's word and he quotes it. He tells the devil, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he defeats all of the devil's temptations. And once Satan realizes that he's been licked, the Bible tells us that he left him, that is Jesus, until a more opportune time came. I believe that next opportunity presented itself in the Garden of Gethsemane. We read about this not long ago. Having defeated the devil in the wilderness, Jesus is granted the opportunity to go up against the foe, the devil, in another garden. It's it's again a replay of what happened in Eden, only it played out much differently. You see, Jesus wrestles with the Father's will there in the Garden of Gethsemane and ultimately comes to a place of surrender. Instead of rejecting the Father and choosing his own will as Adam had done and choosing his own way, Jesus submits to the Father's will and in doing so wins the decisive battle for all of humanity. Then he goes to the cross and he cries out, it is finished. All of that brings us to this point in our story where Jesus is placed in a tomb, but the tomb is in a garden. And it just makes perfect sense because since sin made its entrance into the world through a garden, it's fitting then that Jesus' ultimate triumph over death, hell, and the grave should also take place in a garden as well. Can someone say praise the Lord? And so it was that early on the first day of the week, verse 1, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. This is Mary Magdalene who's described here and she comes early on that first Easter morning to grieve and to pay her final respects. Before meeting Jesus, she had suffered mightily. Luke's gospel tells us that she had been possessed by not one or two or three, but seven demons. So just imagine what her daily life was like. It was a living nightmare every moment, a living hell as she experienced the torment of these demonic oppressors. But all of that changed the day she met Jesus. She was delivered from her pit and her bondage, and she was set free. And from that moment on, she becomes an ardent, devoted follower of Jesus. There's this beautiful scripture in Luke 7:47 that I think summarizes the story of Mary so well. I'd love to read it out loud with you. It says this, those who have been forgiven much love much. Now, I, I forgot to ask you to read that with me, but come on, you know the drill. You've got to read it out loud because when we speak it, it releases it and it impacts the atmosphere. Let's read it together. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. So simple, and yet it says so much. I I almost feel like that verse was written for Mary. She knew what she'd been saved from, delivered out of, and it it created this spring or this overflowing well of love within her heart that couldn't be stemmed. Her love for Jesus is, is evidenced in the fact that she was one of the last ones standing at the foot of the cross at the moment when he died, and also she was one of the first ones to come to the tomb early on that first Easter morning. Now, when she arrives, you'll notice she's shocked to find that the stone is gone. But instead of rejoicing at the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead, just like he had said, she wrongly assumes that grave robbers have come and taken the Lord's body. And by the way, that little detail, in my opinion, lends credibility to the narrative. Surely if the disciples were making this story up, they wouldn't have Mary running away in doubt and fear. And so it's just the kind of thing that you would include if you were trying to give an accurate portrayal of the events as they unfolded. But as she runs away, she bumps into Peter and John, who evidently slept in a little bit, and now they're making their way to the tomb. And she tells them about what she had seen and experienced. So we pick up the story in verse 3. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb, and both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And I always have to pause here because I just love John, I love his candidness, these guys are best friends, they did everything in life together, they fished together, they served Jesus together, even after the resurrection they ministered together, and, and I, I think John was just looking to get a little um, dig in on Peter when he says, we took off for the tomb together, I outran him, I'm the one Jesus loved, it's great. And now he tells us about their shared experience at the tomb. So John's there. He's got time to kill. He bends over in verse 5 and looks in at the strips of linen lying there, but doesn't go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well, as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. And he saw and believed. They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Okay, so here we get this description of Peter and John's journey to faith. Well, you can fill in the blank on that one if you want as well. We're going to read about their journey to faith. And by the way, faith is a journey. It's not just a destination, but it's a journey. Notice how the first thing that grabs John's attention when he looks inside the tomb are the burial clothes. Now, why did this catch his eye? Because it didn't add up. You see, Mary's assessment had been that grave robbers had come. But remember, the most valuable thing in the tomb would have been those grave clothes. We talked about this and how Nicodemus brought 75 pounds worth of spices and embalming ointments and and special wrappings and linens to embalm Jesus' body with. That's where all the money was. The body was worth nothing, and yet they left that behind. So now when Peter arrives... He looks into the tomb and he sees the same thing that John saw. But in addition to that, Peter also notices something else. He notices the special cloth that would have been used to drape over Jesus' face. It would have, again, been extremely valuable, probably the most valuable thing in the entire tomb. And this cloth has been neatly folded and laid over to the side. And then more strangely, he notices something else. He notices that the grave clothes, it's not like they had been unwound, but the original language suggests that they were all stretched out in place as though they had merely deflated when the body they covered just disappeared or went right through it. None of this is adding up. I mean, I don't know a whole lot about robbery, but what little I do know is that grave robbers, or not grave robbers, but robbers in general, don't tend to leave valuable or even the most valuable things behind. So Peter's mulling this over, and it's interesting because John uses a couple of different words to describe how each of them processed what they were experiencing in real time. So he uses three different Greek words for what they saw. The first word is what John saw, and there the word is blepi, and it simply means to glance at or to observe. That's what John does. He looks in, and he just sees the grave clothes. Huh. Doesn't draw any conclusions yet. The second word that John uses is the word thero, and this is what Peter experienced as he saw the, the same evidence, and, and thero it's obviously where we get our word theory, Right? And it means to contemplate. It means to, to examine or to consider. He's, he's beginning to put the pieces of the puzzle together. But he doesn't have all the answers yet. And then the third word that John uses there in verse 9, when he says that finally he went in and he saw and believed. This is, again, another Greek word for saw. And it's the Greek word eido. E-I-D-O. And it means to Perceive with intelligent comprehension. But not only does he see and perceive and comprehend, but he couples that with something else. Belief. John is telling us, this is my conversion experience. This is the climactic moment that my whole story has been building up to. Where I finally crossed the threshold of faith and became a believer. And here's what I love about Peter and John's experience. I mentioned this to you a moment ago, but it was a journey. And it reminds us that faith itself is a journey. These guys didn't start out with full-fledged faith. They were constantly getting wrong. And even as they make their way to the tomb, it's not a resurrected Lord they're expecting to find, but a dead Savior that they're hoping to mourn. So they show up as skeptics, but they walk away as believers. What happened? They gathered the clues, they weighed the evidence, and they landed at a place called belief. Okay, let's personalize this. So many of us have reached the same conclusion. Now, we don't have the same advantages as Peter and John. We didn't get to walk in the tomb on that first Easter morning and observe the the burial clothes, and and we didn't get to see the risen Lord the way they did. But, But we have some evidence, don't we? We have their testimony. We have the testimony of Scripture and all the prophecies, and we've seen some things too. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I've seen Jesus move. I've seen Jesus heal. I've seen Jesus transform. I've seen Jesus save, not just other people. I've seen the difference that he's made in my life. When I gave my life to the Lord finally and fully as an 18 year old young man and I watched him come into my heart and pull things out and make me a new person from the inside out. I've seen some things. And I've heard his voice, and I hear him speak to me through Scripture. And even though we can't see him through physical eyes, we can see him through eyes of faith. You know, Peter wrote a letter, the same Peter described here. He wrote a letter to a new generation of believers who hadn't personally been given this incredible opportunity to walk and talk with Jesus the same way he had. And here's what he wrote to them in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Let's read this together out loud. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Oh, I love that. But here's what's beautiful. Right now we walk by faith. I don't like it. I wouldn't have voted for it. But it's part of God's divine design. We, we walk by faith, not by sight. But someday, very soon, I promise you this, you're going to see him with your eyes. And when you see him, John tells us, you will be like him, for you will see him as he is. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. That is good news. We're going to see him with our eyes. Now, John has told us his story, and, and at this point he leaves He himself and Peter behind him returns to Mary. Remember Mary who had left and told them about her experience there at the tomb. And now she's evidently made her way back to the tomb. In verse 11, we pick things up. It says, Mary stood outside the tomb crying and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. Now, this, this is a kind of interesting part of the story. You know, she, she returns to the tomb. She didn't look in the first time, but this time when she looks in, what does she see? Not one, but two angels. I don't know about you, but I think my response to seeing two angels might be different than Mary's was, right? Am I the only one that's shocked by the fact that she seems unimpressed by these two angelic beings? She seems nonchalant, even a little put out by their question. (laughs) How do we explain that? Well, a couple of possibilities. Number one, perhaps she's not even really looking at them. Her head is buried in her hands. Her vision is obscured and blurred by the tears that fill her eyes. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is that the angels were dressed incognito, right? Um, We know that the Bible says that be careful when you entertain strangers. For some have entertained angels unawares. Isn't that cool? I mean, someday we're going to get to heaven, and we're going to be surprised by the fact that, oh, I had my, I had my, I had my thoughts, you know, that, that person, that that just shared a word with you and said, you know, you ought to go check out that church down the road, and then they disappeared, or they helped you at just the right time, or they pushed you out of the way and helped you avert disaster. I won't be surprised if I get to heaven and learn that I was sleeping next to an angel for all of my adult life. Come on, help me out here, people. Uh, She should be at next service. I gotta remember that one. But there's a third possibility. And the third possibility, and this was a new revelation to me, but but think this through with me. The third possibility is that her grief and her heartbreak blinded her to the reality of what was right in front of her. Think about that. When your heart is broken and your hopes and dreams have been dashed, It can keep you from seeing the hand of God at work in your life. It can keep you from seeing the Lord. It can keep you from seeing what he is doing, even when he's right there in front of you. You see, it's so easy to get our focus on the wrong things. When we focus on what we hoped was going to happen, what we wish would have happened, why didn't this play out the way I'd planned for it to happen, and we're fixated on that, we can miss out on what God's doing, the greater work that he's doing right next to us. You see, all Mary needed to do was turn around, but her grief had blinded her to the presence of Jesus. And the same thing can happen to us. And so at this moment, it says in verse 14, at this, she turns around and she saw Jesus standing there. But notice she didn't realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Interesting. Jesus asks her two questions. Now, I've learned over the years to pay close attention to every question that God asks. Why? Well, because God doesn't ask questions for the same reasons that we do. He doesn't ask questions to gain or ascertain information. He already knows the answer to every question he ever poses, so we ought to pay attention because he's trying to, in every question, get us to probe our response and dig into our heart and see what's going on in there. His first question to Mary this day is, why are you crying? Now, in, in one sense, on the surface of things, it almost seems like a foolish question. I mean, she's obviously crying because she thought he was dead. And by the way, if what she thought was true was actually the case, then her tears are warranted. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul tried to imagine a world in which Jesus hasn't risen. And he rightly concludes this. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 18. Let's read it together out loud. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If all Jesus was is a good example, a moral man, even bordering on the divine, but if his story ends at Calvary, then let me tell you something. We should all pack up and leave. We should all go out and eat and drink and be merry and live fast and die young and leave a good looking corpse or whatever the saying is, because it's all hopeless. It's all meaningless. And the grave ultimately wins. There is no hope. Now, thankfully, Paul doesn't leave things there with what we just read. But the next verse goes on to say, but. And but is a transitional word. And I'm so glad he didn't end there. He said, but. And we got to read this one together out loud as well. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then there is no hope. But. But Christ has indeed risen from the dead. And that means, oh, there is hope. There is reason to rejoice. The tomb is empty. Death is defeated. The curse is reversed, and that means we have hope. That's why we gather each and every Sunday for millennia prior to this. The, 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 the Jewish congregations gathered on the Sabbath, but then in a, in a moment that shifts and the church begins to meet on Sunday. Why? Because Sunday changes everything. It is the, the dawn of a new day. It is the, the signal for hope for all people because he lives. We too know that we shall live forever. Praise the Lord. So that's Jesus' first question. His second question is just as probing. And by the way, he says, well, look with me what he says. Who is it that you are looking for? This is the same question that Jesus asked of John and Andrew at the very beginning of this gospel. You go all the way back to John chapter one when he he talks about his own experience with Jesus and how he became a follower. That's the question that Jesus turned around and asked those two guys. What are you looking for? And it's it's the first question, the first words, rather, that you find on Jesus' lips in John's question. And in some ways, it encapsulates everything that John is trying to communicate through his gospel. You see, we're all on a search. We're all looking for different things. Some of us are looking for love. Some of us are looking for a little bit of peace internally. Some of us are looking for forgiveness. Some of us are looking for meaning and hope and all these different things. And then there's a whole slew of people. They don't know what they're looking for. They're just kind of bumbling and stumbling their way through life trying to figure it out. But we're all looking for something. And what we learn here in Jesus' question is, He is the end of our search for all those things. He is the the lover of your soul. He is hope. He is the fountain of all joy. He is the purpose of your meaning and the purpose of your existence. He is why you are here. You know, one of my all-time favorite quotes comes from the pen of a, a guy named Augustine. Who, after a lifetime of searching, finally found what he was looking for in Jesus. And in his book called The Confessions, he writes this. You have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our souls are restless until they find their rest in thee. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is the end of your search. And if you find a a annoying, nagging, sense of frustration and futility no matter how much you achieve, no matter how far you go, no matter how much you obtain, it's never enough. You can never fill the bottomless pit that is the human soul outside of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And Mary was about to discover that same thing. You see, she she says in response to Jesus' questions, thinking he was the gardener, this is the middle of verse 15, sir, if you've carried him away, just tell me where you've put him and I'll go get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. All Jesus had to say was one word, and Mary instantly knew it was him. And I've often wondered, what was it about that word? Perhaps it was something about the intonation of his voice. Or perhaps it was the fact that she had heard her name on his lips so many times and it meant so much to her. I mean, there's something inside of all of us that we have this craving, this longing to be known, right? And, and to, to think, to imagine your name on his lips, can you, can you imagine? that would That would leave a mark, an indelible impression on our hearts. You know, years ago there was this... Beautiful worship song written by a guy named Tommy Walker. And the title of the song was, He Knows Your Name. And part of the chorus, I think, said, he knows your name. He knows your every thought. He sees your every tear. And he hears you when he calls, or when you call. And it really is not just beautiful poetry. It's absolutely true. The God of heaven knows your name. Listen to this. Oh, actually, let's read it together. This is John ten three. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Oh, that feels good. You're not just a number. You're not just a nobody. You're not just somebody, a face in the crowd, God sees you and he knows you, he knows your fears, he knows your dreams, he knows what haunts you, he knows your, what, what cripples you about your past, he knows, he knows the deepest, darkest secrets in your heart, and he's not turned off by any of it, but he's drawn to you and he's calling to you by name today. Oh, praise the Lord. When Mary heard Jesus say her name, she clings to him. And we'll finish with verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. We began our story talking about how paradise was lost. I want to end today by talking about how paradise has been restored. Jesus appears to Mary. She clings to him, and he says, go and tell my brothers. And by the way, this is the first time that Jesus explicitly refers to the disciples as his brothers. He's elevated their status from slaves to friends to brothers. Oh, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. This is a beautiful truth. And she tells them, I've seen the Lord. And with her testimony, she becomes not only the first person to see the risen Lord, but the very first evangelist. She'd been set free from her past, but now she's being set free from her grief. The darkness that the day began with has ended in glorious new resurrection light. Her tears of pain have been transformed into tears of joy because death has been swallowed up in victory. The curse has been reversed. Everything that Jesus began three and a half years earlier, finds its culmination here at the empty tomb in the middle of a garden. And by the way, I love the fact that Mary mistakes Jesus for a gardener. Isn't that beautiful? After all, it was his work on the cross that welcomes us back into the garden. And isn't it fitting that Adam would... would thrust us into the, the utter chaos of what we see now by taking what was on the tree. And Jesus reverses that by taking the tree for himself and climbing upon it. You see, everything that Adam lost in Eden gets restored through the empty tomb. And so I leave you with this verse. This is 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty five through 57. Let's read this together out loud. Oh death, where is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is victory today through the shed blood of Jesus. But the story doesn't end with Calvary. You see, that is just one part of the gospel message that he was crucified for our sins, that he was buried, and then on the third day, he rose again. The tomb is empty, the curse has been reversed. That means you can live with hope. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.